Good morning. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, if you have a copy of God's Word. And uh, we're going to continue our series that we've entitled Joyful. And uh, so glad you're here. I want to say hi to those that are tuning in online, those that are watching or listening to us on the radio, which is awesome. We get emails almost every week from people that are tuning in to listen on the radio. And just so when we say like we're living in the middle of a miracle, um, we really mean that. This is incredible what Jesus is allowing us to be a part of, to be involved in. And so I'm super excited today. If you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's word, we're going to talk about Jesus a whole bunch because that's what we are here for. Philippians 2, we're going to start in verse 9 and read down through verse 11. God's word says this, For this reason God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thanks again for this day. Father, the privilege we have to gather in your church to celebrate your name because you are worthy. Jesus, now as we walk through this passage in Philippians together, we pray that your spirit would be among us. Father, give us ears to hear from you this morning. God, we need a word from the throne room of heaven today. God, give us hearts to receive your word. May it not fall on deaf ears this morning, but Jesus, may it change us as we pursue you Monday through Saturday. God, may this not just be another thing that we do, but may we have an encounter with the God of the universe today. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been in the book of Philippians for 13 weeks. Just as a reminder, we spent five of those weeks of the 13 uh, looking at Philippians 2 and really this idea from Philippians 2 of, of humility that leads to unity within the local church. We've said over and over that one of the greatest enemies to uh, the mission of the church is disharmony or a church that is not unified under the gospel. But instead, when we let little things, little petty things creep their way into the local church and we begin to argue about things that just do not matter, therefore they cripple us in our pursuit of the mission of Jesus to help people find and follow Jesus all over Northwest Columbus for generations to come. I've reminded us these past several weeks, and I, I say this kind of jokingly, but I really mean this. Um, we don't have time at Living Hope Columbus to argue about carpet colors. If you don't like gray, obviously go somewhere else. That's our color around here. We don't have time to argue about what kind of furniture we're going to put in lobbies. We don't have time to argue about the decorations that we're going to be putting in our bathroom. We don't have time for that. Because we want to ensure that people know that Jesus saves. we got to go to them. we got to create environments where they can encounter Jesus. And that's what we're all about at this church. And so we don't have time to not be a unified church because the mission is too important. We remind us when we talk of this idea of living in humility as followers of Jesus, it means that, that we take other people and we ascribe value to them. That we believe that because of what Jesus has done for us, that we should be able to look at other people and put value upon them and then look at ourselves and say, you know what, they are more important than I am. Therefore, I'm going to live in such a way that they know that despite how I may feel, despite my own personal desires, other people are always more important than me. And then we saw last two weeks that Paul reminds us here, starting in verse 5, that the ultimate example of humility for the Christian is Jesus. 
That if we want to look at what humility actually looks like, lived out, we look to Jesus on the cross because Jesus stepped out of heaven for our sake, lived as a human for our sake, voluntarily died for our sake. But then as we're going to see today, he resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God for our sake. So verses 9 through 11 this morning, keep your Bible open, keep your Bible turned on. If you're a note taker, you're going to want to take notes today. We're introduced to this new element of humility that's called exaltation. This new element of humility that's called exaltation. If you're unfamiliar with this word, it's when somebody is low and somebody comes along and lifts them up. We see that in the life of Jesus. He chose to go low, but instead he's going to be raised up by God the Father here in just a moment. Now what we're going to see here in just a second is that God will do the same thing for the believer. That if we choose to take the humble posture that in due time God will raise us up in this life or the next, God will exalt the humble believer. So let's jump right into this, starting in verse 9. Let's look at the exaltation of Jesus. Look at verse 9 with me again. It says, for this reason, Paul, again, writing to the church in Philippi, he said, God highly exalted Jesus. Last week, we ended in verse 8, where Jesus had really gone to the lowest point that he possibly could in humility. Look at verse 6 with me again. We saw in verse 6 that Jesus didn't exploit his position as God. He had every right to, he could have, but instead, the Bible says Jesus didn't grasp that. He didn't use his, quote, godness to his own personal advantage. Instead, Jesus was willing to give that up for our sake and come to earth as a man. Look at verse 7. What did we see in verse 7? First, he came as a man, the divine stepping into the human. The second part, Jesus could have come as a king, but he didn't. Jesus instead came as a a baby dependent upon his creation, the lowest form that he could possibly take. Now, keep going. Look at verse 8, two things. Jesus, we saw in verse 8, was also willing to die for his creation. You see how Jesus' humility keeps tearing down lower and lower and lower. And at the end of verse 8, we saw the ultimate display of his humility. Jesus went to a cross, man. For me... And for you, the divine, infinite, supreme ruler of the universe willingly came and went to a cross for you and I because we had a sin debt we could not cover. We had a sin debt we could do nothing about. So God said, I'm going to hold up both ends of the bargain. I'm going to demand the debt be paid, and I'm going to pay it for you. Jesus did that for us. And then in verse 9, Paul makes this like sudden transition on us. It's like uh, some of y'all in here are into bungee jumping, which means you're weird. I know some of y'all been bungee. Some of y'all jump out of planes. We need to do counseling after church because something's wrong with you. I was thinking this morning, I was getting ready for church, and I was just thinking about this moment in, in Philippians. I'm thinking to myself, who was the first person that had that meeting? It's like, guys, I got a great idea. Let's attach rubber bands to our feet and jump off a really, really high cliff and see what happens. And then the rest of the group that's sitting in that, that kitchen table as they're having this conversation going... Okay, <laughs> let's see what, you know, I just, that just never made sense to me. But I, but I think that's what's going on here in Philippians 2. We see Jesus almost like bungee jump out of heaven. And he's going lower and lower and lower and lower. And we get down to verse 8 and we're thinking to ourselves, I don't know if he can get any lower in his humility. And then in verse 9, it's like the bungee finally catches. And we see God spring him right back up to where he belongs. Look at this in verse 9. What does it say? That God highly exalted Jesus. What's that referencing? 
That's the resurrection and the ascension of Christ back to his rightful position of, at the right hand of God the Father. Look, look here with me at Hebrews chapter, two, or chapter 12, verse 2. It'll be on our screen as well. For the joy that lay before Jesus, what did he do? He endured the cross. That's humility. Despising the shame. And then now we see the ascension, the resurrection take place. What did Jesus do? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Ephesians 1 verse 20, Paul writes also that he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead. God the Father raising God the Son from the dead. That's the exaltation of Jesus. And then what does he do? Seats him at his right hand in the heavens, restoring Jesus to his rightful position at the right hand of God the Father. That word uh, exalt there that you read here in Philippians, that actually means to be raised to the loftiest height. Uh, that word highly, this is, I don't do this a lot, but I think it's important. The word highly is where we get our word hyper. So if you were to translate Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 here, you could say that Jesus was hyper exalted by God. Like he was raised to the pinnacle. Nobody was higher than Jesus. Jesus is at the loftiest height above all creation. Like he, there is no one higher than our Jesus. Nobody's more important than him. Nobody. He's the biggest and above all things. That's why you've probably heard that song before. You can have all this world, just give me Jesus. That's why we say that as followers of Christ. Because in comparison to everything that we allow to uh, garner our attention, Jesus is so much more, and he's so much bigger, and he's so much more important than all of those things. You see, first we see the exaltation of Jesus because of his humility. Here's the second point. If you didn't know this, we think Jesus is a big deal around here, just so we're all clear on that. Number two, we see the name of Jesus, the second half of verse 9. Look at what, what Paul writes again. It says, and he gave him the name that is above every name. Paul writes, once he's restored to that position, to the right hand of the Father, he's given this name. Now, we have to be so cautious here because we can get in some deep weeds here in the end of verse 9 if we're not careful. Some heresy and some really bad theology. What is the name Jesus was given here that Paul is referencing? It's not the name Jesus. That was his earthly name, the earthly name of the Son of God. You can read about that in Luke chapter 1, verse 31. We see the angel pronounce that, where that's going to be his name, Jesus. That's not what we're talking about here. Instead, the name that Jesus was given, we see in verse 11, the name is Lord. He's the only one that holds that name. The name is Lord. Look at Philippians 2, verse 11. Every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. All creation confessing that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? It means he's the sovereign master of all things. He's the boss. I'm not. You're not. He is over all things forever. The sovereign ruler of all things. You see how it ties back to verse 9? He's raised to the loftiest heights, then given the name Lord. Why? Because he's the only one deserving of that name. Here's a question, though. I was thinking about this the past couple days. Hasn't Jesus always been Lord? You see, we read in verse 9 here where God gave him this name. It's like, well, he just became Lord in this moment. But hasn't he always been Lord? Got to be careful because we get into some weird theology here. Let me show you a couple verses I think are important. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, he's given this vision of the throne room of heaven. So this is pre-Jesus coming as a man. Isaiah gets a, a picture of heaven, and look at what's going on here. And we know, based on John 1 and Genesis 1, that Jesus has always existed, not a created being, equal with God in the eternities forever, seated at the right hand of the Father. We're all clear on that. 
Now watch this, Isaiah 6, verse 3. The angels are singing his praises forever and ever. And what do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. You see, from the moment the angels were created, they were acknowledging that Jesus, the Son, is Lord. Here's another one. I think this is important. Stick with me here because we've got to walk through a couple verses. When God revealed himself to Moses in the Old Testament, you guys remember the whole burning bush fiasco? Like, that was kind of crazy. That happens to you this afternoon. Call me. We need to talk through some stuff. <laughs> but as Moses is talking to a bush like it's normal, the bush says, hey, you need to go and set the Israelites free. That's God, if you didn't know that. If you're new to church, it was God in the bush, and it didn't burn up. It was pretty wild. You can read about it. But anyways... You, you hear that, and he said, Moses says, well, who do I say sent me when I go and talk to Pharaoh? Who do I say actually sent me to set these people free? Look at Exodus 3, verse 14. So God said to Moses, so this is God's answer. He says, who, who sent me? And God says, tell him this, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me. Now, what's interesting about that is I am there is the personal name of God. It's Yahweh. Now, the name Yahweh, just track with me here. I promise this will make sense in a second. Yahweh, I am, simply means the existing one, right? Because your name describes you. We talked about this a few weeks ago. My name, Aaron, means mountain, obviously, right? Your name describes who you are. My oldest daughter, her name is Sophia. Her name means wisdom. We kind of missed that one, but it'll be all right. Your name describes who you are. It describes your quality. So, so when Moses says, well, God, who do I say sent me? God says, just tell them the existing one sent you. I am. Because there's nothing to describe God. He just, he is because he's the loftiest height above all things. Here's what's interesting about that name, though. In your Bible, if you read through the Old Testament, you're going to see over and over the name Lord. L-O-R-D, all in capitals. You know what that is? That's Yahweh, the personal name of God. Because going from Hebrew to English, we didn't have a word to use for the personal name of God. So what did we call him? Lord, sovereign master and ruler of all things. You go to the New Testament. Jesus, stepping out of heaven in the incarnation, has a conversation with a crowd of people one day. They couldn't understand how Jesus, this God-man, knew Abraham, the patriarch of all things Jewish. And Jesus is trying to explain to him that He's like, well, I've existed forever. I knew Abraham before Abraham even was. And look at what he says to this crowd in John 8, 58. Jesus said to this crowd, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. What's he doing there? Jesus is referencing himself in the personal name of God, the all-existing one. You see, the Lord. Jesus could have said, I, I, I am Lord I am master, sovereign, ruler of all things from eternity past. This is always who I have been. Just as God is Lord, so am I. I am Lord. But what do we do with that word gave? What do we do with that word gave, that, that God gave him this name? Because that can really trip us up here. Again, sometimes the English can fall short on things, so it helps to do a little explanation of things. The word gave there means to pour out a gift based on the satisfaction of someone. That you did something that satisfied me, therefore I'm going to give you a gift. What did Jesus do that satisfied God? He died on a cross and bore God's wrath completely for us. 
So what's going on here in, in, in Philippians 2 is God is not necessarily just giving Jesus this name. No, because he's had it from eternity past. Instead, God is confirming who Jesus is based on what he has done on the cross. By coming as a man, dying as a man, resurrecting, and then ascending to the right hand of God, Jesus is confirming for all creation who he is, that he is Lord of all, in all, above all, through all, around all. Jesus is Lord. So what's our response to that? Paul tells us in verse 10, it's the worship of Jesus. Paul says, so that the name of Jesus, that's Lord, Every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. The response to Jesus being Lord, because he is, is worship. Friends, don't miss this truth from verse 10. Every knee will bow. Do you know what the Greek word for every is? Every. All of them. Every single one. Past, present, and future. Every knee will bow before our Jesus. Whether in this life or the next, we all will bow before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let me make sure we understand this important truth. You and I have the opportunity while we're still living to voluntarily bow a knee to the Lordship of Jesus. Where we say he is Lord of all, above all, in all, through all, and I bow to worship him. Or on the authority of God's word here in Philippians 2, we can choose to ignore Jesus in this life. And then according to Philippians 2.10 here, we will forcefully bow before him. You see, there's not an option here where we get to say, no, nah, I don't really want to. You can do it voluntarily in this life because he is Lord of all, or you can forcefully do it in the next life because he's still going to be Lord of all. Notice the three groups that Paul mentions here. These are important. Those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Who are those in heaven? That's past believers, those who've already died in Christ, and that's also uh, the angels, the angelic hosts. So we know that pre-cross, I talked to somebody about this last week, that pre-cross, if somebody died, what happened to them? They went in the presence of Jesus. No clear in that? Just because Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet, they were looking forward to a Messiah that was going to come. So if you died before Jesus had incarnated and come to earth, you would still go up into the presence of Jesus. Paul said in 2 Corinthians what, uh, 5 verse 8, to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. That didn't change. Now, post-cross, we look back to a Messiah that already came, we believe he is Lord and Messiah. And what do we do when we die? We go into the presence of Jesus. So departed saints, that's this group that is in heaven, but also angels. Check this out. Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 and 10 and 11. Right now in the throne room of God, as we speak and as we sing in this room, look at what happens. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, 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 Lord God. There's our word, Lord, the almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. Do you know the praise around the throne room of God will never stop, ever? Sometimes we think about that and we're like, how boring is that going to be? Trust me, it's not. It's going to be awesome. When you fully see God for who he is and you're invited to join the angelic chorus forever, my goodness, sign me up. Watch this. Then they cast their crowns before the throne and they say, here's our word again, our Lord and God. What is it? You're worthy. You're worthy to receive glory, honor, and power because you created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. So right now, those in heaven, what are they doing? They're worshiping Jesus as Lord, departed saints and angelic beings. Who are those on earth? That's us. 
Romans 10 says that we have the opportunity to confess Christ as Lord. And when we do that, we gather in a local context known as the church. And we gather for a pep rally every Sunday at 1015 where we sing about the lordship of Jesus. You ever thought about that before? That Sunday morning's the pep rally before we head out to the game? Maybe we can get Joe to dance around a little bit more. And I don't know. This is the pep rally. And we're the gathered saints that believe Jesus is Lord. And we sing that together. Why? Because we're still on earth. And he has to be praised. Check this out. Who are those under the earth? It's those that rejected Jesus as Lord. Notice this distinction, though. They'll know he's Lord. They're just going to refuse to submit to it. Matthew chapter 25 says at the end of time that Jesus is going to separate the sheep from the goats. That's the believer and the non-believer. Those that are believers, Matthew 25 says, he'll usher into eternal life. But those that were the unbelievers rejected his lordship will be cast into a place that reserved for the, uh, the devil and his angels. But watch this. Even those that are cast into a place called hell are going to acknowledge that he's Lord. They're just going to refuse to submit to it. Look at Matthew chapter 25 with me real quick. 25 verses 44 through 46. Jesus having a conversation with those who have rejected him. Again, this is looking down the corridors of the future. It says, then they will answer Jesus. And what do they say right out the bat? Lord. They're going to acknowledge that. They're going to know he is because you cannot go in the presence of Jesus and not acknowledge he's Lord. It's a logical impossibility. They said, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, a stranger without clothes, sick in prison and not help you? And Jesus will say to them, I tell you, whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then what will they do? They'll go into eternal punishment, but the righteous, where do we go? Eternal life. There's a great distinction. We need to deal with this real quick that we got to make in the church. And I'm talking not our church in general. I'm talking church big C. There's a lot of people that believe in God. We believe in Jesus. We acknowledge he is Lord but we've never submitted our lives to that lordship. Can I tell you that it's not enough to believe in God? It's not enough to simply believe Jesus is Lord. No, no, no. You also have to take the step where you submit your life to his lordship, where you say, Jesus, I don't want to be in control anymore. I need you to take control of my life. Because a belief or a confession without a life that accompanies it is not true. We understand that? That's like me standing up here this morning and, <laughs> this is stupid, telling you, hey man, this afternoon if we went to the gym, I could bench press 500 pounds, no problem. All y'all would look at me and go, yeah, okay. <laughs> Why? Because the confession doesn't match the life. That's an impossibility. What I'm saying doesn't match how I'm living. Yet how often do we see Christians doing that? I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but the life doesn't follow suit. Faith without works is what? Dead. Yeah, we got to make sure we understand that here. Lordship of Jesus is so important, friends, but it's one of the most ignored things, I think, today in our culture. Just believe in Jesus. That person loves Jesus. I love a lot of things, but I'm not going to submit to their lordship. i got to submit to Jesus' lordship, and then I'm actually going to be a follower of Christ. Fourth one, and we're done. The confession of Jesus. Paul says at the end of verse 11, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Again, this builds off what we said here in point three. In this life and in the next life, one or the other or both, everybody is going to confess him as Lord. The believer will say Jesus is Lord. The unbeliever will say he's Lord. The demons will believe and say he is Lord. Those in eternity will confess him as Lord. Those under the earth for all eternity will confess him as Lord. We either get to choose to do it voluntarily or forcefully. See, friends, we don't have a choice. He is Lord. It's just a matter of what we do with that lordship. Jesus is Lord of all, above all, in all, through all. Now, what do we do with that? But notice that phrase right there at the end. All of this from verses 5 all the way through 11 culminate with these last few words. Jesus was humble and exalted for one purpose. What did Paul say? To the glory of God the Father. This is, again, where we, the, the Trinity comes in play. At this church, we believe that our God is one. That's biblical. We also believe that he is three persons. That's biblical. So we see our God, but also God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You say, well, how do we explain that? We can't. Sometimes we try to use ice, and we say, well, God is like an ice cube, where he's a solid as ice, he's a liquid like water, and he's a gas like, like water vapor. That's heresy. Stop it. Okay? Just so we're all clear. Sometimes we'll use like a three-leaf clover, where God is one, where I have a clover, but each leaf is representative of each person of the Godhead. That's also heresy. Stop it. We can't explain the Trinity. It's inexplainable. It's unexplainable. You can't do it. All we know is God is one, yet he is three. So how does this work? Jesus, humble for our sake, exalted by God the Father. For what purpose? God's glory. There's this divine mystery present here where we just have to step back and go, that's amazing, and I'm going to worship Jesus more. Why? Because when the Son is exalted, Paul says the Father's exalted. Check this out. Uh, John 13, 31. Jesus says this. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and watch this. What does he say? And God's going to be glorified in him. How does that work? I don't know. That's the beauty sometimes of the Word of God. Is sometimes the best answer is, I don't know. Will we ever? I don't know. Is Jesus still worthy of my worship? Yep. Isn't that awesome? I don't have to have all the answers. I know Jesus is Lord. That's plenty. Hey, what do we do with this? What's our application? You see, the last few weeks, it's like, be humble, be humble, be humble, be humble. This week is like, Jesus is exalted. What do we do with that as Christians? You know, I was thinking about this a lot this week. I wrote down this phrase, and if you're a note taker, write this down. The same God that exalted Jesus will lift up the humble believer. If we have any application point to make, it's that. The same God that exalted Jesus will lift up the humble believer. The first eight verses of Philippians, the last few verses of Philippians 1, first eight of Philippians 2, um, they really push us to humility. But these last couple verses, 9 through 11, I, I think they really serve just to tighten up our theology a little bit and make sure we understand what happened to Christ. But I also think we can make that application that the same God that exalted Jesus will lift up the humble believer. Because we live in a culture, this hasn't changed, it's been this way forever, 274 years of America's existence where you need to earn more, you need to be better, you need to chase higher, climb your way to the top. If you don't make it to the top of the corporate ladder, you didn't succeed in anything. Bigger paychecks, nicer cars, bigger house, all that kind of stuff. Just this continual like embodiment and bombardment of more, 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 greater, 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 claw, claw, claw. You got to get to the very top. You know what that sounds like to me often? Be careful here. The Tower of Babel. We're going to keep climbing and getting higher because we want to ascend to the highest heights. And you know what God says about that? 
he kicks the tower over. Instead, what we're called to as Jesus followers is Jesus says, no, 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 you stay low. You, you serve me down here. Jesus, the foot washer, you, you stay down here with me. We stay low. And then when God sees fit, if he chooses to exalt you to a higher position, let him do that. But if he waits until eternity to do that, so be it. God will raise up the humble believer in this life or the next. But when he chooses to do so, it's completely up to him. This is a principle found throughout the New Testament. Remain low, a humble servant. God will exalt you in his timing. Two, three verses and we're done. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, where? Under the mighty hand of God. My prayer for our church every single week is this. God, keep us under your hand. Lord, keep us under your hand. We don't want to go above you. We don't want to go in front of you. We don't want to get behind you. Keep us under your hand. That's where we want to stay. And what's the result, Peter tells us? So that he may exalt you at the proper time. You stay humble. Let God exalt you. Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself, what will happen? You will be humbled. God hates pride. If there's any sin he despises more than anything in the universe, it is pride. He says, no, no, no. You stay humble, and then I'll exalt you. You stay humble. Matthew 20, verse 26. It must not be like that among you. Here it is. On the contrary, if you want to be great, be a servant. The greatest in the kingdom of God is the least of these. The greatest in the kingdom of God is the servant. So what's the application? Let's tie together the end of chapter 1 all the way through verse 11 of Philippians 2. Here it is. Willingly humble yourself and let God exalt you. And the opposite of that, that we have to be so cautious of, if we choose to exalt ourselves, be ready for God to humble you. He wants you to stay humble because then when he exalts you, he's going to get the glory, not you. You exalt yourself and you try to take up the position as Lord, guess what he's going to do? He's going to say, sorry, bud, that's my spot. I'm kicking you back low. Stay humble. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you again for your word for this day. Father, thank you that you're allowing us to, to Lord, literally live in the middle of this. And God, our prayer today is that you allow us to remain humble. God, I pray that as followers of Jesus Christ that we choose humility every day. God, we wouldn't try to exalt ourselves to positions or authorities or places in which we do not belong, Lord, but we would stay low and servants of all people. And when and if you choose to exalt us, Father, you're going to get the glory for it. God, I pray that your word continues to do a work in our hearts, change us, mold us, and grow us into Jesus' likeness today. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.